Hi, Cool Hackers. I'm Stephen Mather, organizational psychologist and one of the hosts on the podcast. I'm also a former member of a high control group. So, a couple of months ago, I reached out to our friend Riley from the Jexit YouTube channel with an idea. I just read a book which had really blown me away, and I thought Riley might be someone who I could get on the show to talk about it. The book is called The KLF Chaos, Magic, and the Band Who Burned a Million Pounds, written by John Higgs. The KLF were a band who made it big in the early 90s. At this time, I was still a practicing Jehovah's Witness. I had my doubts, but I was pushing them down. I found the KLF's few hits catchy and fun, but knew nothing about the story behind it. If I had, I would have almost certainly considered this band definitely not for Christians. Over the years since leaving, I've kind of enjoyed watching the overtop music videos of their few hits. Their music is categorised as genre stadium house, a sort of offshoot of acid house, and their four hits are What Time Is Love, 3am Eternal, Last Train to Transcentral, and Justified and Ancient, featuring Tammy Wynette. This last one has always made me smile. The sheer balls to rope in the Queen of Country, Tammy Wynette, with her appearing as some sort of goddess singing straight into the camera lens. They're justified, and they're ancient, and they drive an ice cream van. Young women dressed in robes form a sort of choir, seemingly doing obeisance to something. An obvious reference to an Illuminati pyramid features prominently, and they're all going somewhere. Where? Well, Moomoo Land, of course. What's it all about, I wondered. But it wasn't until I started this podcast that I was motivated to look into what it was all about as a possible episode. I found the John Higgs book and bought the audio version. Wow, I was completely blown away by the story of the band, but also the book's scope and ambition. Little did I know that this story included not only pop music, but mysticism, gods and goddesses, magic, the Illuminati, conspiracy theories, religion, Alan Moore of graphic novel fame, and a cult. Well, sort of a cult. Perhaps I'd describe it as a counterculture cult, but more of that later. So, back to Riley. He was eager to do it, and he read the book too. Like me, he was astonished by it, and so we agreed to do the recording. Now, one of the threads in this book includes the idea of magic. The author Higgs here is not really talking about supernatural things, but magic as art, and vice versa. One of the main protagonists of the story is Bill Drummond, who, along with Jimmy Corty, formed the band The KLF. Bill Drummond is an unusual man. He would, what the author described as, perform magical acts for no one in particular. For instance, if he was going somewhere, he'd plan a route so that if you were to track him on a map, it would draw a certain shape. Higgs describes this as art as symbolic laden action and believes it's a sort of magic. So just hold that in your head for a moment. One of the features of the story of the KLF that we'll explore later is the claim, and it seems pretty clear that this did happen, that they burned a million pounds. 
a large part of the book is devoted to trying to understand why they did this. And Higgs suggests that this was another example of a kind of symbolic laden art. The location of where they did it is a small Scottish island called Jura, J-U-R-A. Now Jura is famous for something else too. It produces a rather nice single malt whisky. Now I enjoy a nice glass of whisky and so I got it into my head that it would be kind of cool to buy a bottle and do something I never normally do, which is have a drink while recording the podcast. I kind of saw it as a magical act. So that's what I did. So Riley and I had the discussion. A couple of days later, as I was doing the editing, I realised that the discussion was a bit chaotic with me monologuing for long periods. And it was clear to me that my magical act had backfired a bit. I decided that I needed to do something a bit different with this episode. So I've re-recorded my parts and edited it slightly differently. It's basically me telling the story and bringing in Riley as a second voice. So I hope I've done this in a way that's interesting and entertaining, maybe even a little enlightening. So my first question for Riley was whether he remembered the band, the KLF. I, I do, I do remember them. I do remember them very fondly. I did like quite a few of their songs. Um, yeah, um, when I when you first asked me to do this podcast, I um, spoke to uh, my wife Marsha about it, and she's a fan of the KLF as well, which I never knew. <laughs> um, we actually started, we we looked up their videos on YouTube and just was just watching them for the rest of the evening. <laughs> I then asked him what his thoughts were about the story, the band, and the book. One of those things where you start out at the beginning and you have absolutely no idea where it's where it's going to end. And it actually, more accurately, if you do have an idea where it's going to end, it's not going to end there. You are way off. <laughs> but I must, I must say that I, I really geeked out on some of like the 80s, 90s nostalgia. So I still remember the 1992 Brits Music Awards where the KLF effectively finished their career as they fired blanks into the crowd from a machine gun to a bizarre version of 3AM Eternal accompanied by death metal band Extreme Noise Terror. It was kind of strange. According to the book, it, it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> the, the, the original plan wasn't a machine gun. It was for him to cut off his own hand and throw it into the crowd. So by comparison, a machine gun full of blanks is like, they, they, they got off lightly. So I asked Riley to do his best to sum up the story as best he could. It's, it's really hard to put into words. It was kind of born out of this idea of chaos, which I found absolutely fascinating. And it was this idea that um, there was a, a goddess of chaos, a Greek goddess of chaos called Discord, Discordia. And it was this idea of um, like opposing forces. Yeah, the forces of order versus the, the forces of chaos, which 
really spoke to me because I, I definitely do believe that that life is about the balancing of op- opposing forces. I, I, I'm 100% behind that, that philosophy. Um, yeah, so out, out of that and out of like, um, how can I put it? Not quite a resistance, but like um, a kind of response to these historical, somewhat archaic structures around religion and belief they came up with this like counter religion if that's a phrase (laughs) which is basically the the opposite of what traditional religions stand for and um there's a lot of like dogmas in traditional religions things that you just have to accept as being true just because they're true they're not but that's what you're told so as a response to that, they have these things called Katmas, <laughs> which I think is a brilliant name. <laughs> and it's basically all about opposing the status quo. And um, the, the idea of, of this um, pseudo-religion gave rise to, to these like uh, ideas and groups pseudo-religion Riley's talking about here is called Discordianism. Throughout the book, Higgs draws our attention to strange-seeming coincidences, threading together seemingly unrelated events. In a way, I believe that he's mischievously mimicking Discordianism itself, which we'll talk about later. In the mid-1960s, without permission, in the office of New Orleans DA Jim Garrison, later to become an important figure in the investigation into the JFK assassination, a manuscript of a book was being photocopied by a group of friends, one of whom had access to the offices. The book was called How I Found the Goddess and What I Did to Her When I Found Her, or The Principia Discordia, written by Malaclips the Younger. This, it's believed, was a pseudonym for Greg Hill and Kerry Thornley. It was kind of a a bit of a joke. But the heart of this joke, or this book, was a debate about whether the universe could be described as order out of chaos, or whether it's really chaos, and it's just that humans impose what looks like order over the top. Hill was an atheist. He said that religious people got it all wrong because they saw order because of God. But that was actually an illusion. But he pointed to the ancient Greeks as an exception to this. They actually had a goddess of chaos and they called that goddess Eris or Discordia in Latin. And her name translates as strife. So they created a new religion called Discordianism. The religion is purposely contradictory and hard to pin down. It will purposely state something one day and say the opposite the next. The use of so-called Katmas was something Riley and I explored more. I asked Riley to tell us about one of the Katmas in the book about why Discordians don't eat hot dog buns. That made me laugh so much. So the story was that um, Eris was snubbed at a party by, by was it Zeus? 
yeah, Ares was snubbed by Zeus. Um, so she sat in a corner on her own, eating a hot dog without the bun. <laughs> so now followers of um, Discordianism, in her honour, they refuse to eat hot dog buns, so they will only ever eat frankfurters or hot dogs with, without the bun. <laughs> this, is, this is something that I found really, really interesting. It's that it, it's basically trying to satirise dogmas. I mean, that particular cat more is trying to satirize the dogmas in religion relating to dietary restrictions and prohibitions on what kind of foods um, their religious adherents are supposed to eat and not eat. So these katmas then become a kind of pragmatic rule that are there as long as they serve a purpose and Riley reflected upon this. Yeah, there, there, there was a line in the book where it said, they don't hold these katmas because they're true. They hold them because they're useful. And I thought that was a really, really profound way to, to sum it all up. And I think the reason why that struck such a chord with me, because I think that that is where the future of all religions is heading. Because the, the more we understand about science and technology in the world, the more we progress as a species in our knowledge is the more religions and their dogmas and their explanations of the world are rendered ridiculous. But at the same time, I don't see religion as going away anytime soon. So what I personally think is that religions will gradually, over an extended period of time, morph into something that more resembles discordianism, where followers of these belief systems don't follow them because they think they're true. They follow them because they're useful to their life in some way, shape or form. And I have no problem with that whatsoever. You know, I, I could completely get behind that. And you, you, we, we even see that to an extent with some new religious movements today, like um, uh, Pastafarianism, <laughs> the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, um, modern day Satanists, um, Jedi Knights, which is actually a, a recognised religion in the UK. The, the followers of these religions don't for a moment think that their belief systems are true. They follow them because they get, they get derived some benefit from it, whether it's light entertainment or community or some kind of spiritual fulfillment, but, but they've abandoned the truth claims. And I think that ultimately is where all religion is, is heading. As part of what the Discordians called Operation Mindfuck, they would publish contradictory writings anywhere they could, trying to confuse and disrupt the accepted order of things, in line with their beliefs about the importance of chaos and the forces of chaos. One of the publications they corresponded with was the letters page of Playboy magazine. This letters page was normally where men might ask for advice about relationships or sexual matters. But this page started to receive strange letters containing bizarre and often contradictory conspiracy theories. And for some reason these fascinated the page's editors, Robert Anton Wilson and Bob Shea, who ultimately went on to become Discordians themselves. 
letters were printed with surreal and contradictory conspiracy theories, including those claiming that a recent wave of assassinations was the work of a secret society known as the Illuminati. It claimed that the Illuminati had existed throughout history. They own international banking cartels, have all been 32-degree masons who turned up a spectre in Ian Fleming's James Bond novels, which incidentally is why they killed him. But other letters completely contradicted these ideas. During this time, the Warren Commission was publishing about the JFK assassination and was widely criticised, giving rise to a hotbed of conspiracy theories. Wilson and Shea saw all of these theories about the assassination, from it being the CIA or the Mafia, Castro forces, or even anti-Castro forces, and they joked, what if all the theories were true? And so was born the idea behind the award-winning Illuminatus trilogy. This was later to become a play written by Ken Campbell and starring some now well-known names, including Bill Nye, David Rappaport and Jim Broadbent. Interestingly, one of the main set designers was one Bill Drummond to become a co-founder of the Justified Ancients of Moomoo, later to be called the KLF. The plot of the Illuminatus trilogy is about a battle between order and chaos. The figure of the Illuminati secretly rule the world for their own evil ends, and in the book, the Illuminati are opposed by a small group of Discordians who have to prevent them from bringing an end to the world. The Discordians go by many names, including the Justified Ancients of Mumu, also known as the Jams, and it was the Jams who were responsible, apparently, for the JFK assassination. These were agents of chaos trying to disrupt the Illuminati's plans. The Jams had been part of the Illuminati until they'd rebelled. The book was published in 1975, and it implanted the idea that the Illuminati were still active as an evil force in the world, even though it was really just a Discordian mindfuck. Riley reflects on the impact this idea in this book would go on to have. What I really found interesting about that whole Illuminati thing, because it really, really shows the evolution of an idea, so you know, so to speak. It's like creating this small thing, letting it loose in the world, and then just sitting back and watching what happens. And I think that's how so many of the particularly conspiracy theories, which I'm very interested in, not because I believe them, but because of the impact that they have on people who are either current or former cult members, is that... The, it's, it's a very, very common theme when, when you speak to, to, to such people is, is conspiratorial thinking, you know. And so it was, it was really interesting for me to see where this whole Illuminati conspiracy came from. It, it, it really was just some guy who just wrote a book or a couple of guys who wrote a book. And it grew in popularity among people who didn't realise that it was just fiction. <laughs> And we see exactly the same thing happening today. Exactly the same thing. According to the Illuminatus trilogy, the Jams rebel 
in a way reminiscent to another fictional character we both know about quite well. Yeah, um, they actually drew that parallel in, in the book between the, uh, the Jams rebelling against the Illuminati and Satan rebelling against God, which I thought was a really intriguing parallel to, to, to draw. According to the Illuminati trilogy, the purpose of the Jams is to create disorder and to fight against the tyranny of order and control. Discordians see this as their mission too with Operation Mindfuck. And I reflected upon how this seemed to happen at a subconscious level for the band The KLF. That's, that's, that's one of the things that I found most fascinating about their particular journey in, in the book because that I got the sense that the entire time they were being led by something that they didn't even consciously acknowledge, observe or understand. You know, it's like they, they, they were extremely impulsive, but this, in, and I, I don't want to get too, um, what's the word, metaphysical, but these impulses that they were following, it, it didn't, I didn't get the sense that they, they were self-generated, that they came out of themselves. It was, it was almost as if these were external impulses that they were following without even fully understanding why. There were a few elements that challenged me and my thinking in reading this book. One of them was the invocation of Alan Moore's concept of idea space. This is an idea more developed as a way to try and answer a simple question that he was often asked, which was, where do your ideas come from? Idea space came from Moore's understanding that we comprehend and make sense of the world through models. We develop models as ways to simplify the world around us, a bit like a map of reality. And he began to see the need to create a model of how ideas come into existence. He describes idea space as a sort of ethereal realm where ideas live. And the writer likens idea space to Jung's collective consciousness, an idea that's now completely discredited by modern psychology, but that he used as a way to explain how it seemed that the same ideas and concepts often seem to appear at the same time from different people, often without awareness of each other's work. For Moore's model, these ideas had a sort of existence of their own and were better described as being discovered rather than created out of nothing. This is the world of art and magic and sits at the heart of the writer's proposed philosophy that the KLF were sort of magicians tapping into this idea space. Moore sees this idea space as primary. Nothing happens in the real world that didn't exist in idea space first. It also might explain why Drummond and Corti didn't seem to be able to explain why they'd burned the million pounds. I expressed to Riley my discomfort with some of these ideas and not sitting well with my rational view of the world, but still how interesting it was. Oh, it's definitely interesting. Um, I've ex actually experienced things like that. Um, I used to, many, many years ago, I used to be a software developer. And many, many times I would dream about a piece of code that I was working on and come up with an answer to a problem that, I was, that I'd been struggling with. It got to the point where I would sleep with a dictaphone next to my bed 
because I'd wake up in the middle of the night with the answer to a problem or the, you know, and I, I would just record it so that I would, wouldn't forget it by the morning. So yeah, it's like tr true inspiration. Where does it come from? Because it doesn't feel like it comes from you. The concepts of models is at the heart of this book. And in my day job, I often share with students and learners models, but I always quote George Box's famous saying that all models are wrong, but some are useful. So the philosophy here is that so long as a model is useful, use it. But when it's not, drop it. Riley has an interesting insight on this. And that's an idea that you can apply to religion as a whole. If a person follows a particular religion and they feel that this that the tenets of this religion make them a better person, then great, <laughs> you know, keep it because that religion is like a model for how you live your life, but it doesn't mean that the religion is real. <laughs> Higgs in the book refers to Robert Anton Wilson, that former editor of Playboy, Discordian and co-writer of the Illuminatus trilogy, and his description of a self-referential reality tunnel a fully self-contained belief system. On page 71 of the book, he says, this was a philosophy, religion or ideology, that was complete and satisfying and which fully explained all the details of the world, assuming that you did not question its central tenet. The surrounding ideology was an elaborate commentary which developed in order to support the central concept, much the same as a pearl forms around a piece of grit in an oyster. Once in, you could explain everything. Interestingly, Wilson used this idea to understand voices he was beginning to hear in his head that he'd been told by various psychics were the spirit of an ancient Chinese philosopher or the spirit of a medieval Irish bard. He didn't like any of these ideas, and he decided that he would adopt the model, that it was actually a rabbit spirit, inspired by the movie Harvey, starring James Stewart. So long as he accepted this premise, it could explain all sorts of things. So he did. This reminds Riley of a story of his own. That, that, that's such a good point, because... Even though I didn't really have the, the that term self-referential uh, reality tunnel, a few years ago, a circuit overseer, he was like asking me, oh, do you have siblings in the truth? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, but they're not in the truth anymore. I have siblings, but not in the truth. He goes, oh, how come you stayed for so long when they left like decades ago? And... Um, I thought about it because I'd never asked myself that question before. And I thought about it and I thought to myself, it's because the truth gives me answers. The truth gives me answers. The, uh, the truth explains why the world is the way that it is. And I've always been fascinated with how things work. And I, I'm very inquisitive, very curious. And I, I hate not being able to answer a question. And the religion provided all of that for me but only as long as you accept the original premises that it's built on. <laughs> but at that time, I did. I accepted them wholeheartedly, and that's why I stayed in it for so long, or one of the reasons why I stayed in it for so long, because it made everything make sense. So this is one of the surprises of this book for me, how it speaks to so much that I recognise. 
the ideology of the Jehovah's Witnesses and so many other fundamentalist Christian cults and other groups is a perfect example of a self-referential reality tunnel. Ask questions like, how did Noah manage to find, collect, house, feed and clean out all the species of all the animals in an ark? And the answer is often that, well, if God can create everything, of course he could make it possible for this to happen. For those not in that self-referential reality tunnel, this is not an acceptable answer. But for those who are, it makes perfect sense. Coming out of that self-referential reality tunnel is frightening. Yeah, that, that's one of the hardest things, or one of the biggest challenges of leaving a belief system. I mean, you, you well know that as the, the, the former name of your podcast indicates is the, one of the biggest challenges. What should I think, you know? It's a sobering thought that we can all fall victim to becoming entrenched in our own self-referential reality tunnels. As Higgs puts it, it's so easy to be fooled into thinking that the model is the reality because it's so useful and its explanatory power is so great. Discordianism, therefore, at its best, can be seen as a way to constantly challenge our orthodoxy. If only my own family would allow themselves to take a critical look at their own self-referential reality tunnels. In some ways, the activity of the Discordians can be seen as noble and useful. But there have been perhaps unexpected consequences. What you said, actually, <laughs> I do this all the time. I see parallels in movies to like everyday conversations. <laughs> I do this absolutely all the time. But what you said just now about um, disrupting uh, the you know reality tunnels of, of, of other people, it reminds me of the premise behind the movie I Am Legend, where this whole zombie apocalypse virus was created because somebody retro, uh, what's, the, what's the correct term? Reverse engineered the measles to create a cure for cancer, I think it was, <laughs> which is a really noble endeavor, but then it ended up having un unintended consequences. And that's exactly what happened with, with Operation Mindfuck. <laughs> the name Illuminati has been used for a number of groups and societies throughout history. There's an early appearance in the 15th century Spain and later in the 18th century as a group of Republicans as the Bavarian Illuminati. The image of a secretive order pulling the strings in the world is certainly a result of the powerful fictional story of the Illuminatus trilogy written by the Discordians Robert Anton Wilson and Bob Shea. For the KLF, they were deeply affected by the Discordian concepts, even if they weren't consciously aware of it. Again, it, it, it seemed like they didn't even know why they did it. You know, they didn't even know why they did it. it, it it's, I definitely got the sense that they, they were being led. <laughs> they were being led to do these what appear to be impulsive things, but it was almost as if they were following commands. But these commands were coming from an unknown source that, you know, that they didn't even realize on a conscious level. Because after they did that, 
they held sort of like, um, I don't know whether to call it a movie screening or a press conference, <laughs> but they, they basically invited people to help them understand why they did it. Which is <laughs> just bizarre. <laughs> Riley also considers how cult members will often do things that are not in their own interests. I think there's a really interesting parallel there with members of cults and high control groups because they they definitely do things that are against their own personal set of ethics and morals. And they do things that don't necessarily sit well with them, but they do them anyway, you know, because of... Um, I can't, I guess you can't quite call it a compulsion. It's more like directives from up above. Um, but it's still the sense that they're not marching to the beat of their own drum. It's somebody else's. So I thought that was interesting. Their self-destructive behaviour at the Brits, their forays into art, and ultimately the burning of the £1 million can be seen as performative magical acts, according to Higgs. The act of burning the cash, a way of rebelling against the power of money and the systems that create it, including usury, money lending, are explored by Higgs in the book. And at the end, Higgs offers the reader two conclusions. One is that this all happened as a result of magical thinking, where he argues that the KLF and their burning the money was a sort of magical act that brought in the new millennia, where an elaborate web of intent and conspiracy can be weaved together to create an epic story. And the second option is a rational one, that the events and behaviours of Drummond and Corti were the result of coincidences and behaviours that can be explained through normal, everyday processes and in a rational way. I thoroughly recommend you read the book and decide for yourself. As for the KLF, after they became the K Foundation and burned the million pound, they announced that they would have a 23-year moratorium on all projects from November 1995. So in 2017, 23 years later, they announced that they would return. They turned up for a press conference in an ice cream van and released a book called 2023, a trilogy. It's a book I haven't read yet. Maybe I should. Thank you for listening. 